This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Aaron Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your host for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. Thanks so much for joining our conversation today. We're in the middle of a series called Go Home, Finding Our Way. And each of these conversations, we're looking at common assumptions regarding the home and its proper place in the life of men, women, and the church and the world. And uh, something this week caught my eye, Hannah. I'm not sure if you saw this article, but it was talking about the company LuLaRoe. Are you familiar with LuLaRoe? Oh, yes. It's a multi-level marketing firm and they sell clothing, soft, cozy leggings and tops, clothing for women. So you've, you've heard of LuLaRoe. Yeah. Do you have any LuLaRoe? I don't. And when people first started talking about LuLaRoe, I did not know what it was. And I'm not sure if it just hadn't hit amongst my uh, friend group or what, but I wasn't aware of it until I started recognizing the the pattern tights and tops. And it was like this home marketing thing where women were having these online parties and little boutique parties. And so I wasn't familiar with it, but it's been in the news. What's your experience so- with it? Well, LuLaRoe hit our community about three years ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. And and as with lots of direct sales and multi-level marketing um, ventures, you can kind of see it creep, right? You can see it kind of pops up with one person Mm -hmm. who got it and then their friend starts getting it. And then it kind of just migrates to the whole community. But what was interesting, like with the LuLaRoe phenomenon, because if you don't know about it, LuLaRoe is... uh, Comfy clothing that's very brightly colored, bold colors, leggings and long tops and dresses and it's knitwear. So it's very comfortable and yet it still has this kind of respectability in terms of you can wear it out. So you're not wearing your pajamas. Sweatwear out. Right. Right. But it's <laughs> but it's very comfortable. And it started moving through our small community and it it is not the kind of clothing that we would typically wear here, right? So we're very jeans. We're very much um, sensible, typical clothing. But people loved it. The women loved it. And especially I saw a lot of women who were teachers. They would buy it because it was just comfortable to be working in. But I knew that it had hit kind of peak concentration when I was at church. And this farmer who was in our church, you know, just saw the earth. Uh, he he was like looking at the women. And he says, "What's with all these women wearing these skinny britches?" <laughs> skinny britches. I skinny love britches. That. <laughs> That's precious. I love it. Let's call it. So yes, we had our Lularoe <laughs> moment. I do think it's kind of peaked because yeah. there's only so much you can buy of yes. that kind of product. And I think when the trend moves on. 
you know, it, it kind of does, as clothing trends do, you're, you're kind of left with this closet full of, you know, clothing. And it all kind of looks the same. It's the same style, same structure. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what's happening with LuLaRoe. In the news, I'll make sure I get this article hooked up in our show notes, but LuLaRoe is um, struggling a bit. They were making billions of dollars, and now their sales have really been tanking. And a lot of this is because of the the structure of the company. It is a multi-level marketing company where a consultant can buy in and and they have to invest their own money to buy their initial inventory. At the peak, you would pay $5,000 to get your initial inventory, which is a lot of money. Some women say they paid up to $10,000. And so you get your inventory, and then your whole goal is to then sell off your inventory. And most of the the consultants are using online means and measures. Some of them also do little pop-up stores. But a lot of women, most of these consultants are women, not all of them, but most of them are women. And they are now saying that they have all of this inventory that they cannot sell. And it actually, instead of helping them to contribute to their family income, they have been pushed further into debt. And some of them had to claim bankruptcy. Some of them had to cash out 401ks to wipe out their debt for LuLaRoe. So this is a real problem because so many of these these micro um, multi-level marketing uh, setups, they're, they're really marketed to people to give you extra income to get ahead. And you can do that from your home rather than going out into the marketplace and working there. And so really this, this structure, what it's being proposed in terms of its positive bents, it actually is collapsing in on itself and it's causing more harm than good. Yeah, and I think LuLaRoe as a company has its own unique kind of structure that has created some of the problems that you're describing in terms of having to buy that much inventory mm -hmm. up front. Slightly different than other multi-level marketing companies where you might put orders in. Like if you yep. think of Chef or even essential oil kind of products where you, you get orders from friends and family and then you have products come in. But a setup like LuLaRoe is having the consultant um buy this large amount of clothing and then try to sell it after and, it acquired it. And I think they're they're stressing this whole idea of be an entrepreneur, run your own business. And so they're trying to um, gauge it or frame it up as something very positive in terms of it's your business. They're trying to elevate it and make it seem that way. But like one woman who is... Um, interviewed for this BuzzFeed article, she said that she lost most of her friends because she was constantly working and she wanted her business to succeed. And she said basically she became stuck in her house seven days a week and she was constantly going through inventory, taking pictures online, pushing product, trying to make sure that she was selling off her investment because it was so huge. But she said the, the flip side of this is when consultants got concerned about their sales and saying it wasn't working for them. She says, this woman, Katie, says that the LuLaRoe culture is your business is what you make it. So the pressure is on you as the consultant. And she says the implication was clear that if you couldn't make your business work, you weren't trying hard enough and there was no time for slacking off. And so she felt like that was the culture 
it it gave you the sense of ownership of this is my business and supposed flexibility. You get to work from home, but then in actuality, the reality of it was you work yourself so much that really your home just becomes your place where you are you're stuck and you're working constantly. And so there really isn't any break between home and work. Whereas if you were working outside the home, maybe you'd feel like you got a a break from it and you'd come home and have rest. So kind of interesting. And I think I think this dilemma, the the larger question underneath this specific dilemma that you presented um, is the relationship between our home and work Mm -hmm. and our marketplace. And we touched that um, on that last series where we talked about creative pursuits and working in this kind of gig economy where if you're pursuing a slightly different form of vocation that may not fit into the nice, neat package of, that the marketplace allows for, that there is this possibility that the work of home um, and the work of the marketplace, there's this natural tension there, but we can also see how the marketplace can kind of come into the home and take it over. And I think that needs our attention. If we're thinking about home and we're thinking about the work of home, we can't not think about the kinds of ways we try to get income to support the work of home and family, but also that there is very much this possibility that the pursuit of income to support the work of home could potentially overwhelm the very things that you're trying to accomplish in the home. Mm-hmm. Yes, the stress of that, um, trying to make something work to the point where you are overwhelmed and you lose relationship, then it's almost as if the work of home, it, it is more of that obsession. So in some ways, it doesn't really matter where you are doing your work. If your work is something that you are pursuing obsessively, it's going to have... a a terrible effect on your relationships and your personal health. Throughout this article, a lot of these consultants say that they were having a lot of mental and emotional struggles because of the stress of constantly working. And so there's this this idea of work-life balance. Is there such a thing? Well, and same thing with like work home balance. Are they separate separate spheres? Well, those two things you cannot pull them apart. There's no way that you can say work is over here, home is over here, and there's no way to totally balance it. It's more like having a, an integrated approach to the work of home and the work of family and life and who you are, who are you becoming. Um, all of that has to fit together, and we've got to figure out a way where it's not eating us alive. And I think that's what I was getting from this article is that these women were going after the idea of the business and the success in order to have a better home life, but really they ruined it in the process. Right. And I think we have to be careful, though, to understand why it was appealing in the first place. Mm I am not one to wholesale right off multi-level marketing or direct sales or network marketing, because I feel like it is providing or at least highlighting a way in which our society is failing. Mm -hmm. And here's what I mean. This kind of company would not be attractive to people unless they were articulating a point of pain that people have. Yes. And what I have seen in the kind of pitch to join multi-level marketing is 
a hope for a better integration between home life and the marketplace Mm -hmm. that you could stay home with your family and give the attention and care to your family that you want to. And that wouldn't mean completely cutting yourself off from sources of income. Mm -hmm. Problem is the way our society is structured right now is it pretty much does. It does. If, If you want to be in the marketplace, there are expectations and standards of your time, your attention, your focus that really put the agency within the corporation or your boss or the marketplace. And so if you choose to enter into that, you are giving up a certain level of control over your own life and even your home life. And so I think especially for women, um, they're looking at this dilemma and saying, I feel like I have to choose between giving attention to my home or giving attention to my career. And, you know, for women who choose to give attention to home, even if it's just for a certain season, they then are cut off from what our society terms productivity mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. income streams. And so the companies like LuLaRoe or multi-level marketing companies are coming into that and saying, yeah, that's a legitimate problem. And we're going to find a way outside of traditional marketing or to the traditional marketplace. We're going to find a way to find a solution to that kind of separation or that wall or that fragmentation between the home and the marketplace. And then they offer a solution that makes sense initially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the key to this offering from something that's non-traditional, it's that there's a flexibility to it. Um, Because I think most of us would say that we are working, whether it's home or work, we're all working quite a bit. I mean, we're we're investing in either the work of home or the work of work all the time. Um, And then we have downtime, we have, you know, family time and social time. But all of us are working quite a bit. But if you are more of a non-traditional worker, we talked about this in, in our previous series as well, you have more flexibility to say, oh, tomorrow I have a full day. So I'm actually going to get up at four in the morning and put in three hours before I even start my day, because then I've got five hours that I'm booked. And then I'll come back and I'll work some more hours later in the day. You have that agency to say, I'm going to do it. But you may still be putting in that same 40, 50, 60 hours of work, it may just be at really odd times. And so we are still pursuing this level and intensity of work, whether you're doing it on your own or in the marketplace. I think the the catch is that it's the assumption that you could have the same perks of the marketplace by somehow shoving all of those hours in at home with still having a totally free schedule at home. And there's no way to do that. Like there's no way for you to be completely at home and working a job that is bringing in the kind of income that you think you want to have. Like that's just not possible. So I feel like there's a disconnect here where we think we should be able to have it all. And that's not just a female thing. I think that's a family thing. I think we think we can do the work of home and the work of work and everyone should be able to do all of it all the time. And that's just not possible. It isn't, but, and I'm going to push back here because I think it should be. Mm. And I mean, it is not possible to do all the things, okay? It is not possible to completely um, succeed in the marketplace and succeed in the home, the way things are structured now. 
But I look at that and I say, well, maybe something's wrong with our structure. Mm-hmm. And I mean that we should all be superhuman. But I do mean that if you look at the way human beings are created and you look at the way God designed the world to work, even if you go back to the first chapters of Genesis 1, and there is the creation mandate given to the first man and the first woman, the creation mandate says, be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion over the earth. And there is not a disconnect between those two things. They actually rely on each other. So traditionally, we talk about being fruitful and multiplying context of physical reproduction. You might say the work of the home, the kind of private kind of exercising of building your your family. And then the exercising dominion might be the work more broadly in the public space of exercising rule and reign over the, the earth. But, but that kind of explanation even itself comes from modern categories of separating the work of home from exercising dominion. And the reality is that those two things should be intertwined. And our mm-hmm. comes when we understand that they're dependent on each other and they're designed to partner with each other. So I imagine an ideal world where my ability as a woman to bring forth life and to care for my family should not force me to a place where I can't pursue my work that my brain wants to do or that my talent or my gifting wants to do for the for the benefit of broader society. So if there is a tension between, well, you have to pick between your home and serving broader society, I say, no, you're wrong. Like the structure's wrong. And, and I think that you're right that we can't mm-hmm. do things. But my question is, why not? Is it because there are inherent limitations? Yes, there are. But is it because as well that our society is structured in such a way that it preferences certain parts of us and it rewards certain parts and then tells us to basically choose mm-hmm. like choose that you're going to have? And you can only have one of these two things. Mm-hmm. And, and I say, why not both? Why not? Both? Why not? Both? Yes. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At BOW, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Okay, so we're talking about this relationship between marketplace and home. And Hannah, you are proposing that actually we may have our our framework, our structure wrong, and we may need to adjust our perception of how 
the home and the workplace and the mar- I guess the marketplace, how those two things work together and fit together. And really, that may be why we're seeing this crisis in the marketplace and why things aren't working for us personally. Right. I'm not suggesting that there aren't limits on your time and limits on your attention and your capacity. I'm saying that we need to clarify what those limits are. And maybe, maybe it's possible that the marketplace is eating up resources and demanding things of us that we need to have a boundary there that says, actually, I don't like the terms on which you're asking me to work. Mm -hmm. So my own terms and my terms are I will happily work for the good of the company or the corporation or the public space as long as there is an equitable reward that my family is also able to flourish. I'm not going to sacrifice the flourishing of my family for the flourishing of the marketplace, but I'm also not going to sacrifice my ability to flourish through certain gifts or certain calling because the marketplace has told me it's all or nothing. Yeah, that all or nothing, I, I feel it and I sense it. I think that even in the past few years, I've been challenged to assess how much of the marketplace standards I am pouring my life through that framework and through that lens because it is just so common. It's how we think and live here in our society. This is our cultural value is um, to go after the American dream and be successful. But that's all marketplace driven rather than is that a kingdom value? Is that something that we are called to do and be is to make the marketplace flourish? And I think that those two things are so intertwined, it's really hard to pull them apart to say, okay, but who's dictating me? <laughs> is it is it that I'm going by what um, the, the flourishing of my soul and the use of my gifts? Or is it that I'm really just um, submitting and yielding to what the marketplace is demanding of me? That's challenging. And I think that that's something we have to think about because that should not have that great of a pull on us. Um, because I, I think that's where we're getting to right now, where everyone is exhausted and they're running around trying to meet these expectations of work. Right. And I think one of the clearest examples of this, particularly for women and why they do feel caught between this choice between can I support the work at home or do I need to support the workplace? It's even something as simple as how early would a woman go back to work after giving birth to a child? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you hear things like women are going back to work after two weeks or yeah, it's unreal. Or five weeks. And and you begin to ask, how did we get to a place where like a woman has just made a person? Mm-hmm. And that's not enough. Right. It's not because her real productivity lies with the marketplace. And so I think it's those kinds of more practical questions of how can we put boundaries in place? How can we say actually our home needs several weeks or months of attention when we've had this massive transition, whether it's giving birth or adopting a new member into the home or even um, saying goodbye to a member that is in a hospice or is dying. When a member of the home is going through massive change, that means everyone in the home is. 
And if you've got the marketplace breathing down your neck saying, you need to be here. Yeah. Tension needs to be here. And, and people are caught in that place where it is such a catch-22 that they feel like they have no choice but to say, okay, fine, I'll be home. Mm-hmm. Or they feel like, okay, fine, I'll come back to the marketplace even though I'm not ready and my home really needs this attention, but I'll lose my job if I don't. Right. And the assumption is, oh, if I lose my job, well, not the assumption. The reality is if you lose your job, then that is going to affect the livelihood of the home, the flourishing of the home in that way. And so you are left choosing between these two options and neither one is ideal and you just have to pick. Um, That's a very scary and stressful place to be, especially when you have just added a member to your family or you're in the middle of um, end of life decisions for another member of the family. And thankfully, there are people giving attention to this at a public policy level. Um, And I had a chance recently to talk with Rachel Anderson, who's with the Center for Public Justice, which is a policy think tank, a Christian policy think tank in um, Washington, D.C. And they've been doing some really important work and moving forward a conversation about paid family leave. Well, Rachel, I am so glad to have a chance to talk with you today and to have to introduce you to listeners. Um, But I was wondering if you could maybe just before we get started, tell us a little bit more about your role at the Center for Public Justice and really what the mission of CPJ is. Well, I'm a resident fellow at the Center for Public Justice, which means that I get to think and write about public policy through a Christian lens. And specifically, my focus has been on work and family policy. Um, the Center for Public Justice is a about a 40-year-old policy and civic engagement organization that seeks to promote biblical justice with this big idea in mind, principled pluralism, which I'll talk about in a bit. Um, But CPJ works in the Reformed tradition um, that affirms God's lordship over all of creation, and that includes the policy sphere. Public justice is kind of a distinct concept, and it's in our name. And so again, that public justice is is really uh, manifested when all elements of of creation broadly and of a society work well together. Um, So we're thinking about What's the right role of the market? What's the right role of the family? What's the right role for educational institutions? And how does this institution, the government, help those work well together, right? So we're not thinking about the government doing everything or setting the rules for each of those within each of those spheres, but making sure that they work well together and one doesn't come to dominate the other. Now, I know recently you've been giving a lot of thought and a lot of time to this question of paid family leave. Could you share with listeners what exactly that is, uh, what kinds of initiatives, what kind of policy you've been working on to promote this this implementation of paid family leave? Well, paid family leave um, is really just uh, the kind of support that uh, one uh, one gets during a period of family family care. Um, Kind of we think of it most frequently in the period of time right before, right after a child is born or is welcomed into a family. And the idea is that's a period of time, certainly for for those who are, um, who would be otherwise in kind of a paid job, um, that they're not in that job, that that there's time spent in the home. Um, 
and when if you are unable to work um, it means that money's not coming in and if you don't have enough savings paid family leave would be a way to support a family through that period of time I think many folks know that kind of the standard in the US right now is to have about 12 weeks of protected time after a child is born um, so that means you know your your employer can't fire you depending on the kind of employer you have or if they fall under these these rules but your employer can't fire you for being home with a new child for 12 weeks after that child is born or is adopted um, but paid family leave would say if a paycheck is not coming in from your employer um, there's some way to kind of to bridge that gap so what makes this an important conversation like why are we even place as a society or um, as families as you know, relationships in the marketplace, why are we even having this conversation? So very broadly, I think of this as a way um, for these institutions, for the marketplace, for workplaces, and for families to work well and work better together. I think what we see for many is that relationship has broken down. Looking across our, um, our society, the U.S. has higher infant mortality um, than most developed nations. So we're, I think, 71% higher infant mortality than comparable countries in terms of our economy. Um, and 20% to 25% of mothers go back to work um, outside of the home within just a few weeks of giving birth. Um, that means moms can't nurse if they had wanted to. It means kind of an interruption of that crucial parent-child bond. So I think those are signs of some breakdown, um, signs that families aren't able to be together the way they want to be and the way, in my view, God intended them to be um, during kind of crucial periods of nurture and development. I think obviously this ties into some of those kind of some bigger questions that I think you have written about and, and talked about that more broadly is, you know, kind of is our connection to work beginning to take over even these intimate parts of our lives, our family lives. And that's a much bigger question, but paid Paid family leave is one way of kind of building some protection around um, some pretty crucial phases of family life. Right, because I think what we're getting at is that it's not just a choice to return to the marketplace that, you know, if a person or a woman chooses that, but that in many cases, there's kind of an economic need to return, um, perhaps sooner than um, you might feel ready to. And so, kind of carving out this kind of space or, or making a mechanism where a person, where you could relieve the economic burden at least and allow them to make a decision as a family within that space about when and how um, to return. Seems like we're kind of giving back more decision-making power to the family um, and taking it off of kind of, the, I don't know, the budget, not letting economic concerns necessarily drive that choice as much. Exactly, exactly. And I think economics drives it for a lot of households, for a median earning family. Um, just taking three months off of work can be a pretty big, uh, pretty big impact on the household budget. Um, I think certainly for a, a variety of reasons, um, there are ways that we've, that uh, we feel pressured to be at work, right? If, if we're connected to a job, um, often for good reasons, we feel a sense of responsibility. I think workplaces are still working on, working out um, 
how to how to respect the family responsibilities of their employees. But when that's not there, there can be a whole lot of pressure um, on someone to feel like they've got to be back at work when in fact they're they're um, pretty critically needed at home. And that can go for a new child. It can also go for periods of time, maybe caregiving to someone who's at the end of life, a parent or a sibling or a loved one. Um, these are pretty precious times, but I think the pressure can be pretty significant um, mm. to be away from the home. Well, given that these policies are, are currently being structured and being considered um, both at the state and national level, I'm sure you, you do get some pushback or resistance. Um, what kinds of things would people object to in, in this kind of conversation? I think one big question or piece that um, folks are working out is whose responsibility is it to cover that gap? Let's say it's a three or six month period of time when um, a parent really needs and wants to be at home. Is it, is it the household's responsibility to save up all that? But that can be tough, especially if you're early in life, um, as many uh, families might be when they're having a child. Um, is it the employer's responsibility to cover all of that extra pay and then also hire somebody new or have a temporary worker? Um, or is it a public responsibility? Um, I think lots of folks would love to see that benefit come through their employer. Um, and that is true for just under 20% of the workforce right now where there's a private benefit. But then 80%, um, that private benefit hasn't been provided by their employer and a lot of employers can't afford it. So I think some of the challenge right now is working out um, who and how to share that burden. I do think some of the public policies that are being developed um, in this space um, to provide some amount of public benefit could be really helpful because they actually then take the burden off just the individual family or just the individual employer, um, particularly those employers who are smaller and can't afford and, and of course, as you mentioned, there are a lot of things in play. There, there is the good of the family. There is the good of the business. There's the good of the public funds to, you know, and there's all these things that are, um, you're weighing out. In, in your mind, what does a healthy relationship between mm -hmm. the marketplace look like? That's a great question. <laughs> and maybe a big one. I, it, it might very well look different for different families. Um, so part of that healthy relationship might be the freedom for families to work out what's best for them um, and for their, their children and their loved ones. Um, I do think it's a relationship that has some, um, some give on all sides. So, um, you know, maybe between both parents, there is ample time at home, ample time at work. I think it's really interesting a few years ago, several um, a Christian psychologist and um, I think edu education um, scholar looked at this question and said, well, what if we had a 60 hour family work week, right? Um, and families could sort that out between themselves. Uh, is it one parent mostly at home or is there a shared, um, kind of two shared, what are considered part-time jobs? Um, we don't have to decide that for everyone, but uh, a kind of a relationship between work at home that really allows for both and that considers um, the real seasons of family life, um, the time that you really have to be home all the time, maybe young children or a child with special needs, and then the time where um, 
where parents can be balancing their work time and their family caregiving. Well, thank you for being with us, Rachel. Thank you so much. Anna, I really appreciate your conversation with Rachel um, because of that insight that she's bringing and things that I wouldn't have thought about, like her ideas there about how um, maybe there should be a time per week for the family unit to invest rather than each individual member. I have never thought of that before. And so that's new to me. Um, I I don't know if that's something you've thought of before or heard about. Well, we're really not trained to think that way. Being a family contribution or a health contribution to the marketplace, because what I think a lot of us still have is that traditional sense of maybe the primary breadwinner goes out to the marketplace. You know, in the past, might have been the father, the husband, and he gives the classic 40 hours to the marketplace. And then if you're frugal enough, if you live a modest life, you can live on that salary. That's enough income for the household to flourish. And what we don't recognize is how that isn't reality anymore. Mm -hmm. We still are operating in that model of if we have the primary breadwinner, if we have the 40 hours, we should be able to get by. What's actually happened over the last few decades is that we've had... um, shifts in not just inflation, but the affordability of life. And people have found and families have found that it's not enough for one person to be in the marketplace. Mm. What's happened is we've slowly, the marketplace has slowly begun to demand more and more and more of our time as a family. And I don't think we're always recognizing it because we may think in terms of like the LuLaRoe, well, I'm just doing this on the side. Right. Right. We have that and side until hustle you, mentality. <laughs> yep. Right. And until you start calculating the amount of time that your family is actually giving to the marketplace as a whole, mm-hmm. it's shocking mm-hmm. to realize that side hustle wasn't just something that was fun. It was like something you seriously needed because of larger economics. Right. Right. That's, again, where I feel like the game is rigged. pay attention to that yeah and part of that boundary is saying how much can my family actually give to this that is a better question than saying how much money can I make because I think that's the other uh kind of like the lure that I see very often even with the either a a, a bright shining job or with multi-level marketing consulting there's always the the um the splash of you could make this much money per month and that all looks good until then you start thinking through but how much time do i have to invest to even get that much and then eventually are you upside down in it and i think that's really what it is is that we think that we can invest all of our time with no care or concern for our own well-being our health um how much how much time are we spending on um, self-care, on our relationships? I mean, they say that we aren't getting enough sleep and how much that affects us. And I think just our quality of life is decreasing the more time and effort we give to the marketplace. And we aren't seeing ourselves as the full human being. We're seeing ourselves as workers 
and primarily as workers rather than human beings who then are working to contribute to the good of society. Mm-hmm. And and one of the simple things, the way I find this, is that if your home chores, if the work that you do around the house is beginning to feel so burdensome mm. and like it's a waste of time because you're mentally calculating how much other work you have to get done yeah. to just contribute to the marketplace and make the income that you need. Like that's not flourishing. That's not the way it should be. I mean, work around the house is always going to be work. There, there's no question of that. But I feel like sometimes when it comes to the work of home and family, we begin to put it to the side because it doesn't have an income attached. And then it feels almost like an obligation. Yes. And not rewarding us. And how would that differ if you had a stable, steady income that you weren't killing yourself to achieve? You, you were honestly and carefully rewarded for your work in the marketplace. But then you had all of this other time to say, we can give attention to our own flourishing as a family mm-hmm. and do this work. And we can invest here um, because it is just as valuable, maybe even more so than the work we're doing out here that we're exchanging for income. Mm-hmm. It seems to be highlighting um, the places, even in my own thinking, where I am prioritizing the work that I am specifically paid for over the work that is just as important, but it's not coming back to me in terms of dollars. And I think that that, um, that fallacy is something that needs to be rooted out. And we really need to be thinking of that, um, how much we are putting, um, basically putting a a price on ourselves and we are becoming the commodity. We are the thing that is working um, and and selling our our skills, but above and beyond who we are, we're we're selling it above and beyond the the care of ourselves and flourishing of our own soul. So yeah, I feel pretty convicted on that in a good way. Well, well, I think it's just a lot to process uh-huh. because we're taught to think. And I think it requires some reflection on our own lives and the choices we're making and what we actually want, what we actually value. And so I hope this is the beginning of a thought process for a lot of people. Um, If it is, if you want to hash out these ideas or throw questions out or process things with us, you can always join us on Twitter at Persuasion CAPC or if you're a member of the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum. We are always up for conversation and debate um, there, and you can become a member for just $5 a month. We want to give thanks to Jonathan Claussen. He's our producer. He produces Persuasion and all the other shows in the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. If you want to give those shows a listen, go to iTunes and and type in Christ and Pop Culture. All of those shows will pop up for you. Thanks so much for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at ChristandPopCulture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name.
This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.